Welcome to Take 12 of the series, What We Catholics Believe. This tape is about Our Blessed Lady. Now obviously you won't want to say all this in one go to anybody. But I think you will want all these truths to emerge as you're teaching the doctrines of the Church and as you're telling your hearers about the various incidents in our Lord's life. So I hope you'll find it helpful to have them all put together on one tape. I think one thing we need to get across to our young people is that our Blessed Lady is the most important human person ever to have lived on this planet. Remembering, of course, that Jesus is a divine person. There's nobody else who's more important. Because our Blessed Lady is the one woman who was chosen by God to be his mother when he became man. He, you remember, was in a position to choose his own mother because he was already in existence, of course. We didn't choose our mothers. God chose them for us. But Jesus chose Mary to be his mother. Why did he choose her? It wasn't because she was rich, because she wasn't. Or even because she was important, because she wasn't at all then. He didn't want to be the son of a queen or a princess anyway. No, he chose her because of her great goodness. Her wonderful love of the Father, which showed itself in how obedient she was to the Jewish law. And we see that all through her life. She kept the law when she had Jesus circumcised at eight days, when she took him to the temple to be presented at forty days. She kept the law when she and St. Joseph went to the temple from Nazareth every year for the Passover, taking Jesus once he was old enough to manage the long walk. She even kept the law of the Sabbath on that dreadful Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross. She and his other friends worked quickly so that they could have Jesus' body washed and laid in the tomb and be back home before dusk, when the Sabbath began. So she was absolutely obedient to the laws, the Jewish laws in force at that time. She also loved her neighbours. I think we see that when we see how quickly she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, when she heard that she too was expecting a baby, and she guessed that she might need some help, even though it meant a long walk to Judah. And of course Our Lady had absolute purity, which must have been a great delight to Jesus. She was full of wisdom, fortitude, every virtue you can think of, and, most notably of all, humility. She herself mentioned her humility when in the Magnificat she said that God had looked on the humility of his handmaiden and so chosen her. So it's worth us learning to know about her so that we learn to love her as she should be loved. Especially as unlike other historical figures like Julius Caesar or Shakespeare, 
if we have an interest in our Blessed Lady, it is more than entirely reciprocated. So Our Lady has a great interest in each of us. She's our mother. Our Lady runs like a golden thread through the whole Bible. We find her in the very first book of the Bible, the beginning of chapter 3, where we hear that the serpent is told, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, that's Our Lady, and between thy seed and her seed, and she will crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. This is why we see statues of Our Lady, with her foot crushing a serpent's head. We also see her foot over the crescent moon. And that's a reference to the very last book in the Bible, the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation, where we read at the beginning of chapter 12, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So Our Lady's there all through the Bible. In the Old Testament, she's reflected in the valiant women we read about. There are references to her in the Psalms and in the Book of Wisdom, and in the prophecies, especially of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's rather interesting that from the time of King David, there was a special seat of honour on the king's throne, set aside deliberately for the king's mother. Looking ahead to the time when we will be honouring Christ the King's mother. All through the long years of waiting for the Messiah to come, the good Jews, the chosen people of God, practised a great degree of chastity. That was the way God prepared them for the birth of his Son. Then, in the fullness of time, we find uh, we meet Our Lady in the New Testament. I think it helps to place her historically and geographically, especially for the youngsters you're teaching. If you can, show them a map of the Holy Land so they can see that there's Nazareth, the town up near the north, and that Bethlehem and Jerusalem are 70 miles away further south, and also that Judah, where Elizabeth our lady's cousin and the mother of John the Baptist lived, was a very long distance from Nazareth. So Mary was born in Nazareth to a devout Jewish couple who belonged to the house of David. Tradition tells us that their names were Anne and Joachim. Now the church teaches that from the very first moment of her existence, Mary was born sinless. But from the beginning of her very life, she was protected from the original sin that all of us are born in. And that was done deliberately so that no sin would touch her who was going to give her flesh to make God himself when he came on earth. This is called her Immaculate Conception. Now, the church didn't actually define it until 1854. 
but it's been there in the teachings of the church all the way through. We find it in some of the very ancient liturgies, like the liturgy of St. James or the liturgy of St. Basil. We also find that the Orthodox Church honours her Immaculate Conception. And unfortunately they split from the Catholic Church in the 11th century. And interestingly enough, one of Christopher Columbus's boats, when he sailed the Atlantic, was called Conception, after the Immaculate Conception. And he also called the second island he discovered Conception Island. So Catholics accepted it, took it for granted, believed it and honoured Our Lady for being conceived immaculate. I think it's quite a good thing if the children you're teaching are old enough to understand, to explain it a little. It can sound difficult. Immaculate and conception are two difficult words, Latin words. And they need to know that it just means spotless, sinless. And conception is the beginning of our lives, when our souls are created. So Our Lady's soul was created sinless or immaculate. I also think it's quite a good thing to make it clear that this has nothing to do with the virgin birth. That didn't take place until 15 years later. Unfortunately, you get people who confuse the two. You even get Catholics who confuse them. I have seen religious textbooks where the writer obviously thought the two terms were interchangeable and meant the same thing. So it is a good thing to explain that and make it clear. So Mary was born to Anne and Joachim, grew up in Nazareth, sinless and perfect. When the time came, Anne and Joachim chose a husband for their daughter. And this time would have been when she was around about 14 or 15 in that country at that time. And they chose the son of another devout Jewish couple who also belonged to the house of David. And of course his name was Joseph. But before Mary and Joseph came together, as we read in St. Luke's Gospel, the angel Gabriel appeared to Our Lady and greeted her, Hail full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and then told her that God had chosen her to be his mother. Once Mary understood that her virginity would remain intact, and that the baby would be born by the Holy Spirit, she agreed, saying, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. And at those words, God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, leapt from heaven, as one ancient hymn puts it, and took flesh in his mother's womb, growing and developing there for nine months, just as we did in our mother's womb. Now St. Matthew tells us in the first chapter of his Gospel that St. Joseph was very exercised when he discovered that Mary was with child until an angel came to tell him that he was not to worry, that this child was of the Holy Spirit, and that he was to take Mary to be his wife. And so obediently he did. 
It's difficult to talk about Our Lady without mentioning St. Joseph, the wonderful husband that God provided for her, who shared so many of her virtues and who lived so happily with her, both in virginity, caring for the divine child. St. Joseph was the head of the Holy Family, and he is a great role model for all fathers who are heads of their families. Now the stories of Jesus' birth, presentation in the temple, and finding in the temple at twelve, are all included in the five joyful mysteries of the rosary. So I won't go over them again now. But we meet Our Lady again at the beginning of our Lord's public life, when she and Jesus were invited to a wedding at Cana. St. Joseph is not mentioned, so we presume from that that he had already died. But Mary and Joseph were both invited. And our Blessed Lady, who was very highly respected, was put at the top table to sit with the bride and the groom and their parents, while Jesus, her divine son, who they thought of just another young person, sat at another table with some of his disciples. Because she was sitting close to the host, Our Lady noticed when the steward told him that the wine had run out, and she also noticed how distressed he looked. And because of her kindness and compassion for other people, she got up and went down to where her son was sitting. Now she knew she couldn't help them. There's no way she could work a miracle. She's a human being like us. But she also knew that Jesus could help them. So she said to him, Son, they've run out of wine. And he answered rather mysteriously, Woman, what is that to do with me and thee? My time has not yet come. But Our Lady said no more. She went back to her place, and as she walked past the stewards who were standing by the empty jars, she said to them, Do whatever he tells you to do. Then she sat down. And of course, Jesus called the stewards over, asked them to fill the pots with water, and without even leaving the place where he was sitting, changed the water into wine, and very good wine at that. Now there are three lessons we can learn from this story about Our Lady. First, that when we need something, when we're in trouble, if we turn to Mary and ask her to speak to Jesus for us, she will, just as she helped those people who were in trouble about the wine running out. And then again, we can learn from the way she asked him. She just told him the problem, let him notice her concern, and left it with him. She didn't stay coaxing and pleading. She went back and sat down, trusting him completely. And of course he worked the miracle. And the third lesson, I think, is to look at the words she said to the stewards. Do whatever he tells you to do. These are the last words spoken by our Blessed Lady that are recorded in the Bible. So they need pondering on. I think she meant them just as much for us as for the stewards.
we should all do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Now Our Lady didn't feature very much in Jesus' public life. But on the first Good Friday, we find her close to him again. She was there in Jerusalem, walking along parallel with him while he was carrying his cross up Mount Calvary and suffering every step of the way with him. That was when the sword that Simeon had prophesied when Jesus was still a baby would pierce her heart. Pierced her heart. And she knew then what he had meant. She walked with him. She stayed at the foot of the cross with him until he died. And she received his body down from the cross. The apostles were not there except for St. John who was with Our Lady. And I can't help remembering a scene portrayed by St. Mark in the 10th chapter of his Gospel when the apostles were talking rather pleased about the kingdom of God and how they were going to bring it about. And he said to them, Can you drink of the cup that I will drink? Now his mother certainly could. She shared his passion and his suffering as closely as she could the whole time. As I say, taking his cross, his body in her arms when he was taken down from the cross. Then, of course, Jesus was laid in the tomb. But first of all, his body was washed and anointed and wrapped in the shroud, a shroud of Turin that we still have. The stone door was put in front of the tomb and Our Lady and the others hurried back home to be there in time for the Sabbath, which was just starting. That Sabbath Saturday must have been a terribly desolate day. After the crucifixion, Jesus dead in the tomb. Our Lady must have suffered dreadfully still. That's why the church keeps Saturday, especially as Our Lady's Day. And very often votive masses to Our Lady are said on the Saturday. But on the Sunday morning, as we know, Jesus rose from the dead. Many writers believe, although it's not mentioned in the Gospel, that early on that Easter morning, he came to visit his mother. To show him, show her that she, he had risen from the dead and that all was well, and to comfort her again. But we do know, and this is recorded in the Acts, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, 40 days later, he left his mother on earth. She stayed to care for the infant and growing church, just like she had once cared for the infant and growing Christ. And I'm sure she accepted that work just as readily as she, she had accepted the request to become his mother back in Nazareth when she was a young girl. She must have stayed on earth for about another 15 years, cared for by St. John, in Jerusalem at first, 
And then when the apostles scattered at the time of the persecution, she would have gone to Ephesus with him. When the time came for her to go to her reward in heaven, she was assumed up into heaven, carried into heaven. But even then, she didn't desert us, her children on earth. She has journeyed with us all through history. Her visitations back on earth to talk to us and to remind us again to do whatever her son tells us are too numerous to mention here. But I will just list some of the ones that are near home. The great English shrine, of course, of Walsingham grew up because Our Lady appeared at Walsingham in 1054, before the Norman Conquest, to a Saxon woman and asked her to build a replica of the little house in Nazareth where she lived so happily with our Lord and St. Joseph. Walsingham is still a very holy shrine with a wonderful history and it's well worth a visit. Then in 1241, again in England, she appeared to St. Simon Stock in the grounds of the monastery at Aylesford in Kent where she gave him the scapula, the brown scapula that so many Catholics wear and asked him to spread the devotion and encourage people to wear it. Then if we go across to Paris in 1830, in the Rue du Bac, she appeared to one of the nuns, St Catherine, and gave her the miraculous medal. Well, it wasn't called miraculous at the beginning, it was just a medal that Our Lady had designed herself with the prayer, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. But this medal soon began to work such great wonders that it got called the Miraculous Medal. And again you can visit Rudebach and go to the chapel where Our Lady appeared and pray there. In 1858, still in France, she appeared in Lourdes, a little village near the Pyrenees, to St Bernadette. And many people make pilgrimages there every year, especially the sick who receive so much help there. In Ireland, just to mention one in Ireland, she appeared at Knock in 1879. And I think perhaps one of the most extraordinary visitations and one of the most important was her appearance at Fatima in 1917 because that culminated in the most amazing miracle. A lady appeared to three young children. She appeared many times and because the children's words were doubted she said to them I will in October Ask God to work a great miracle. So she foretold the miracle and when it would happen. And the children told the people who were living in the village. And the word got around. So that on the 13th of October, and she appeared on the 13th of each month, there was an enormous crowd in Fatima come to see if there really was a miracle. Most of them were very incredulous. They didn't believe there would be a miracle. They'd come to scoff. But they had to go away with a very different attitude. 
with their minds completely changed. I'd like to read you just a short account of what happened on that day. On October the 13th, 1917, in the presence of about 70,000 eyewitnesses, the whole area was crowded. A miracle was worked in the sky above Fatima at the exact moment and in the precise spot that the children had announced earlier it would be. Witnesses recount that the sun appeared to actually dance in the sky. Then it seemed to fall almost to the ground before resuming its normal place in the heavens. Fulfilling Our Lady's words, on the last month, I will perform a miracle so that all may believe. This event has now become known as the miracle of the sun and has been justly characterised as the greatest supernatural occurrence of the 20th century. One leading Fatima authority has noted, this great miracle does not belong only to the domain of faith, or even that of science. Before all else, it is an historical event. The Church has officially endorsed the miracle and the Fatima message as worthy of belief ever since 1930. And the Pope has now beatified the two children, the younger children who have died. The third child, Lucia, is still alive and living as a nun. Now Our Lady came with a very important message. She wants us to pray, especially to pray the rosary daily. She wants us to pray particularly for sinners. She said many sinners are being lost because nobody prays for them. And when she said being lost, she meant they are going to hell for all eternity. She even showed the children, young as they were, a vision of hell, which made them determined to help the poor sinners. And that's a message we must take on board. We must pray the rosary. And we must pray especially for sinners, to save them. She also introduced the devotion of the first five Saturdays to make reparation, reparation to her Immaculate Heart for all the sins that dishonour her. And sadly today we have more blasphemous books, plays and jokes about our Blessed Lady than ever before. So today there is more need than ever to make this reparation. Our Lady asked that on the first five Saturdays, first Saturdays of five consecutive months we go to confession and we receive Holy Communion. We say five decades of the Rosary and, as well, we spend 15 minutes meditating on any one mystery that we like to choose. I think this is a devotion that we should encourage our young people to make and make it with them. There is need to make reparation to the sins against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And also even for the mistaken attitude adopted by too many Catholics today that we should play down the honour and love we owe our Blessed Mother in the idea of promoting a false idea of ecumenism. As if 
soft-peddling the truth would ever do any good to bring people to the truth. I'm always surprised that that amazing miracle at Fatima didn't convert the whole world. Because it was astonishing, because it was seen, because the journalists who'd come to scoff went back to write accounts of it, and the newspapers were full of it the next day. Pictures as well as a story. But people seem to take it very casually. I remember I have a friend I talked with who came from Portugal and who lived near Fatima. In fact, she was married in the church at Fatima. And I said to her one day, you must have grown up with people who saw the miracle. Oh, yes, she said. My parents saw it. They were children at the time. They were each playing in different villages near Fatima. They hadn't known that anything special was due to happen. But, of course, they saw the sun dance in the sky and then fall almost to earth. And they told her about it. But although that happened, and it undoubtedly did happen, people still don't pay enough attention to the message of Fatima. But we can help to put that right. All Our Lady's appearances show her great love and solicitude for us. And we should respond by loving her, honouring her and obeying her wishes. Our Blessed Mother has inspired artists all down through the ages. So there are beautiful paintings of Our Lady, especially Our Lady with the child Jesus. There are sculptures. We think of the beautiful Pieta of Michelangelo in St. Peter's Cathedral, Peter's Basilica. There's music, the wonderful settings of the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary, and even poetry. The poet Wordsworth, who was not a Catholic, wrote a beautiful poem to Our Lady extolling her immaculate conception, which includes this line, that she is our tainted nature's solitary boast. And she is, of course, the great honour to count her in the same human race that we all belong to. Now we're going to do something that she asked us to do. We're going to say the rosary, the first glorious mystery of the rosary which is the resurrection of our Lord. After our Lord was taken down from the cross on the Good Friday afternoon, his body was washed and anointed with oils. And then he was wrapped in a shroud and carried to the tomb. The tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, one of our Lord's uh, disciples, who'd built it for himself. It was in his garden, which was very close to the place of crucifixion. But he gladly gave it to our blessed Lord. And when his body had been laid in the tomb, a stone was put in front of the door, and his friends went home. And then two Roman soldiers came and stood guard outside the tomb. Now they had been put there because the high priest requested the tomb should be guarded. They thought the apostles would like to pretend that Jesus had risen from the dead and might steal his body. But if there were two Roman soldiers standing there, of course they couldn't. So Jesus lay in the tomb all Friday night, all day Saturday, and all Saturday night. 
with soldiers on guard outside. Then early on Sunday morning, first there was a slight earthquake, as there often is in that part of the world, and the stone rolled away from the front of the tomb. And then the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the whole history of the world took place. Jesus, who had been dead on the Friday, brought himself back to life. His soul came back to his body. He was again alive. He rose through the shroud and he stood. Not just alive, but well and fit. The marks of his passion, the holes where the nails went in his hands and his feet, and in his side where the sword went or the lance went, were still there and are still there now. But they no longer hurt. He was perfectly fit, perfectly well, and able to walk out of the tomb to the consternation of the soldiers who hid their faces. But he walked past them on down to Jerusalem. Now that is unique. Nobody else has ever done that. And one would say until it happened it would be impossible. The only reason it happened on Easter Sunday was because Jesus is God. And for God nothing is impossible. It validates the religion that he taught. It just shows he had the authority to tell us what we should believe, what we should do. Because he has the power to bring himself back to life after he was dead, undeniably dead, and in the tomb for that long. And really, if you're going to start a religion, that's the kind of authority, that's how you need to substantiate it. It's no good just standing up and giving your own opinion, although people do it. It doesn't really carry much weight. I remember a story of Oscar Wilde going out to a dinner party one night and finding himself sitting next to a very boring man who went on and on about a religion he had made up. And he said to Oscar Wilde at the end, I think it's better than Christianity. What do you think? So Oscar Wilde said to him, Well, all you've got to do now is die and on the third day bring yourself back to life and we'll all believe it. And that was a very good answer. Because that's why we believe our faith. It's the cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection. The apostles were very quick to realise that. And they realised how important it was that they used people, they chose a replacement for Judas, somebody who had witnessed the resurrection. And many people did. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus that morning. The two disciples on the way to Emmaus met him. The apostles saw him that evening in the upper room. They saw him several times. And he would eat and drink with them, just like he had before he died. And then, of course, 500 people, or it's meant to be slightly over 500, saw him all together, just before his ascension, as we're told in the Acts of the Apostles and St. Paul refers to it too. So there were many people who witnessed the living Christ after his resurrection. And that's what they preached. You find it in the epistles and it must have been in their spoken word too. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead.
And this is what he taught. And that's how they converted so many people and why the church spread so well as it did. The resurrection. So it's a very important mystery. Also, of course, it affects us very closely, apart from the teaching being um, corroborated by it. It affects us because Christ's risen body is as ours will be when we rise from the dead of the general resurrection at the end of the world. He was the first one to rise again. But our turn, we trust, will come. So that's what we think about while we say the Our Father and the Ten Hail Marys of the first glorious mystery, the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this tape with me. Our next tape is going to be on the four sacraments we haven't yet covered. Confirmation, Marriage, Holy Orders, and the Sacrament of the Sick. 
or as it used to be described, the last sacraments. I hope you'll be able to listen to that too. May God bless you all. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.